Mark chapter 1, and I'll be reading the first eight verses. First, let's pray. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to come here and worship you, to look to your gospel, the account of your life. We thank you that you've preserved it for us to know you and to study, to draw closer to you. We ask for your blessing upon Mike's preaching today and that you use him to speak to us through your spirit. Amen. Mark 1, 1 through 8. In the the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. It is good to be with you, good to be with God's people on this Lord's Day. It has been a a wonderful week, it's been a beautiful week, it's been a difficult week uh, this this week. Uh, For those of you that don't know what I'm talking about, you weren't here last week, we had uh, the largest number of people here since I've been around the last six or seven years. Uh, Pastor Adam Talbot and his family was there last Sunday, last week. And what an expression of love as we had many believers from other churches coming here that they have influenced through their, through their ministry and through their lives uh, to, uh, to have them here. It was a great outpouring and a great expression of love. So it has been a difficult week in saying uh, goodbye to them. If you missed last week... I want to encourage you to go to our church's website. We also have a Facebook page. And Emily Talbot uh, wrote uh, the lyrics and the music to a song called You Are With Me. And she played that, and we have it on our website. So if you go to like where you're going to listen to the sermons or audio, you come up to that first page, and it's right there, and you can watch and listen. Was that powerful? when she uh, sang that last week. So those of you that weren't here want to encourage you uh, to go there and listen to that. Uh, yesterday, they, uh, they drove away, and it was uh, a difficult morning. 
And I brought something here, okay? This is not a golden calf painted brown. Um, but I just thought it would be good to bring this up here. We, there were just a few of us, um, Cleveland and Elizabeth Spies and Ryan King and, and uh, my wife and I were there and uh, as the Talbots were getting ready to pull out. And not long uh, before they left, he's like, oh, Mike, I got something for you. And I'm thinking, what, is he, what does he have for me? And he comes out with this from the house. And uh, it's, it's not a brown golden calf, a uh, golden calf painted brown, but this is a water buffalo from Africa. So okay with you if I just kind of have him up here uh, today? Is that, that okay? I mean, I've, I've, already, I've already done that. So uh, I told him I was going to bring it, and it just brought smiles to us yesterday morning as I was walking around with this thing in my, in my hand. Pastor Adam has traveled to Africa um, over the years, and, and uh, anyway, so as you come into my office in the coming years and you see this, you're going to know what this thing is about, and that I'm not, during the week, uh, bowing down before some, uh, some calf, that sort of thing. Well, our church believes very strongly in preaching the whole counsel of God. We believe in preaching through books of the Bible generally. And so it is appropriate today we begin a new series, we begin a new book, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark. There are occasions throughout the year where we pause and we, we pause for uh, whatever series we're in to celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas time and at Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday and we pause, but we always preach from the Word of God, week in and week out here at Cornerstone. And I'm excited today to begin this new series through the Gospel of Mark. Before we get into our text today, I want to give us some background about the author of the Gospel, sometimes referred to as John Mark. So some background here before we get into our text The New Testament provides few facts about John Mark. He's called by both his Jewish and Roman names only in Acts. John being his Jewish name, Mark being his Roman name. Now there's not a lot written about Mark, but there are some things in the New Testament. And so I want to look at a few of these verses right now, just as a framework, uh, an approach, if you will, as we begin this series through the Gospel of Mark. So one of these references is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. It says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. And I've put this verse up here because of that reference, of course, to Mark. But what is going on here, just so you understand, she is a metaphor for the church, for the people of God. She who is in Babylon, Babylon is a metaphor for Rome. Rome was a difficult place for Christians in the first century. So Peter is writing and he he is saying that the Christians who are here in Rome, chosen together with you, the recipients of his letter, uh, we send you our greetings and so does my son Mark. So Mark was a spiritual son to the apostle Peter. He was, if you will, a disciple in a special way to Peter. Yesterday morning was reminded of the special relationship of a couple's spiritual sons to Pastor Adam. 
uh, Ryan King in Cleveland were there uh, yesterday morning uh, as they, just before uh, they drove off. And it was, um, it was an indicator of the special relationship they've had uh, over the last few years. Uh, I couldn't actually hear what they're saying, but Pastor Adam, I would hear the voices as Adam met with Cleveland and Ryan in the office right next to me. They were his spiritual sons. And he has been pouring his life into them and preparing them for this next phase of life if they have just graduated from high school. And so this is kind of like the relationship. Mark had this sort of relationship with Peter. He is his spiritual son. We read more about this in the church fathers, that is those uh, Christian leaders in the first century just after the passing of the apostles. I won't go into all of those, but we read about their relationship in the church fathers as well. Another reference to Mark. We're getting background here as we are going to spend many months in this gospel to the person Mark or John Mark. Acts 12.12. And when Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. So Mark's mother's home was a meeting place for the church. And that tells us, and other things tell us, very likely that Mark was from a well-to-do family. The early church met in homes, and they tended to be the largest homes, so they could get everybody in there. And so this tells us something about him as well. John Mark's well-to-do family occupied a significant place in early Christian communities, first in Jerusalem and later in Antioch. His mother's substantial house provided a focal gathering point for believers in Jerusalem and was the first port of call for a recently escaped Peter who, when writing later from Rome, described Mark as my son, my son, this special relationship. Now, one of the most controversial things about Mark and maybe what is most well known from him comes out of Acts 15. Let's take a look at this together on the screen here. It says this, sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. This is one of the things that stands out about Mark. You guys familiar with this? You guys with me this morning? Trucking through some background here, but we're going to get into the, the text here. So there's, some, there's a disagreement that took place. And it's interesting, as far as we, the best that we can tell, what this disagreement was probably about, why Paul is reluctant to bring John Mark with him, it was likely over what is known as the Judaizing controversy. See, the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus alone. But in in the early church, there were some people that said, oh yes, we recognize Jesus is the Messiah, but we also need to keep these Jewish regulations and keep these Jewish laws. And so very likely, for a short season in his life, John Mark was with those folks, those heretics, if you will, who were saying, yes, we recognize Jesus as the Messiah, but you also need to avoid bacon and, and these sorts of things in order to truly be saved. And so John Mark moved away from that, and it's interesting that Barnabas sees that and is ready for him to come, but Paul is more reluctant uh, to bring him along. But Paul doesn't stay there. 
the very end of his life, near the very end of his life, 2 Timothy 4.11, Paul's in prison. And he writes there and he says, only Luke is with me. He says, get Mark, get John Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. So we see Paul's came around to Barnabas's perspective here and wants Mark with him near the end of his life. So all of that by way of background, let's get into, uh, let's get into our passage now. Mark 1, 1 through 8. So we're looking here at John the Baptist. We've looked at background on, on John the Mark, and now we're looking basically at John the Baptist. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So Mark's gospel begins with this announcement, with this title. It, it has echoes of Genesis 1.1, the beginning, uh, the beginning of the gospel, the beginning of this new good news that God is doing in the history of salvation of his people. The beginning of the gospel that is about Jesus Christ, that has come from Jesus Christ. And a significant thing in Mark's gospel we have right at the beginning that Jesus is identified as the Son of God. He is not just a man. He is a man, but he is the Son of God, and He is God the Son. Then we have this quotation from Exodus, from Malachi, and from Isaiah. It was a common thing in the first century when you quoted from the Old Testament and quoted from a variety of places that you would identify the most prominent or the most well-known author as the source of that. So we have actually a quotation here from Exodus, a quotation from Malachi, and a quotation from Isaiah describing John the Baptist as the messenger, as the forerunner, as the one who is prophesied to prepare the way for the Lord. Now, it's interesting that John's gospel doesn't have this, uh, doesn't have a whole lot about Jesus' birth, doesn't have anything about Jesus' birth, doesn't have a whole lot about this, this lofty prologue like what we have in John's gospel, that the Word has always been, in the beginning was the Word. Mark, is, Mark writes kind of like a newspaper reporter. He's just off and running and ready to go. And so he begins here with John the Baptist. One commentator writes this. He says, lacking the polished sophistication of elite literature, this work with its lively and down-to-earth style was like its good news, like the gospel for everyone. Mark's gospel, we might call it the, the common man's gospel or the, the, uh, the newspaper style gospel. And I'm excited about our journey going through this book. Are you excited, church? All right. I'm not totally convinced, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a good series and I'm excited to go uh, through this gospel. Let's look at verse 4. Uh, verse 4 and following. So John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me pause here for a second because when we read verse 4, we read about John's baptism, this baptism of repentance, and when we read about baptism, Christian baptism, in other parts of the New Testament, it sounds like this baptism is required for salvation. It sounds like this is... This is this is what you have to do in order to be saved. 
This is sometimes uh, called baptismal regeneration, this idea. And the scripture seems to describe that. We know that that's actually not what is being described because in many other places, the scripture makes it very clear. For example, in Ephesians 2, that it is not by works, but it is by grace and by faith that we are saved, not by what we do. But on the other hand, baptism is hugely important. Both John's baptism, this baptism of repentance, and Christian baptism, they're hugely important in the Christian life. But they are not uh, essential things to salvation. The Heidelberg Catechism helps us understand why the Bible uses this language uh, regarding baptism, both here and in other places, where it sounds like this is required for the forgiveness of sins. Question number 72 says, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? Question 73. God has good reason for these words. To begin with, God wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more important, God wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. So God has given us baptism and he's given us the Lord's Supper. These are hugely important. We are in God's will if we have been baptized. The believers should have been baptized. Uh, This is an important thing, but this is not what saves us. It is important that we celebrate the Lord's Supper But these are not things that actually save us. They're an outworking of our faith and love for God. All right, back to Mark chapter 1, verse 5. It says, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts with wild honey. Okay, this kind of seems like a, a guy that might have a VW bus today, um, the way that he's uh, dressed, um, his diet, uh, he might actually fit in pretty well, but John the Baptist is not in Santa Cruz, he's not in Big Sur, he is out in the desert, he is out in the desert, proclaiming repentance, proclaiming that Human beings need to turn from their sins and obey God's word. Obey the law of God. Now, it's astonishing what happens here. We can just blow by this. We're familiar with the story, but look at verse 5. The whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know how many. This is a lot of people. There may be a little bit of hyperbole here, but there are thousands of people that are going out into the desert to see this strangely dressed guy who's preaching repentance and baptizing people in the Jordan. God is at work here. The Spirit has moved. This has been prophesied. And this is preparing for the Messiah who's going to come. There's a lot of instructions for us here. There's these temptations for us as a church. We need to have the most eloquent preaching and we've got to have the best worship team and we've got to have smokes and smoke machines and lights and all of this stuff to bring people here. What we need is the Spirit of God to move upon people. 
Thousands and thousands of people went. After a time of, of not much happening and advancing the kingdom of God, and all of a sudden, John comes, the Lord puts his hand on him, preparing the way for the Messiah, and thousands are coming and repenting. John is huge. John the Baptist is a huge figure in the history of salvation and in the Bible. Luke 16, 16 says this, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. This is the marker. John the Baptist is the marker as God advances his kingdom. The law and the prophets, the people of Israel, the the laws of Moses were, were what we were all about until John. This is the final prophet of the Old Testament. One commentator writes this, he says, his appearance in the wilderness was the most important event in the life of Israel for more than 300 years. And people are flocking to him. And look at his message, verse 7. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's message was was so not about him. It wasn't about his church. It wasn't about what they were doing. His whole message was about the one who is coming. There's a lot for us to take away from this. All these people are coming. And what is he doing? He is just pointing to the one who is going to come and calling people to repentance. This is really, and we're not each John the Baptist, obviously, but we are called to live our lives much like this. Not pointing to ourselves, pointing to the Lord by the way that we live our lives so that others would come to repentance and faith. Now, I can't preach this passage without correlating it some with with some of the other Gospels, particularly with Matthew's Gospel and what Matthew says about John the Baptist. Let's take a look at this together on the screen. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth, Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Wow, that is, that is an astonishing Statement and sentence. Jesus says, among women, I think by this he means with the exception of the miraculous conception of Jesus himself, among all of humanity, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That is an astonishing statement that Jesus makes. Why does he make that statement about John the Baptist versus so many other people, so many other prophets? D.A. Carson writes this, he says, John the Baptist is greater than a prophet. He is greater in that he alone of all the prophets was the forerunner who prepared the way for Yahweh Jesus, for this Messiah who's going to come, this covenant-keeping God, and personally pointed him out. 
While the Old Testament prophets doubtless contributed to the corpus of revelation that pointed to Messiah, they did not serve as immediate forerunners. This is what makes John greater than a prophet. Indeed, the greatest born of women. This is an astonishing statement that Jesus makes. And he makes it because he is the final one who is pointing to Messiah and confirming himself, John the Baptist, that he is the one to point by all of these Old Testament prophecies. But that Jesus says something more, another astonishing thing in Matthew's gospel. Look at it with me. He, he, we've already looked at the first part. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But look at the next part. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, greater than John the Baptist. This too is, this is just astonishing to me. Jesus is saying John the Baptist is the greatest human, aside from himself, born. And now he's saying that any one of us believers who are least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. We need some help with that, don't we? How in the world am I or you greater than John the Baptist? I mean, this kind of ties in with the sermon a few weeks ago, doesn't it? Psalm 8, where uh, we look in the mirror. We don't feel like we're made in the image of God. We don't feel like we're created just beneath the heavenly beings. We certainly don't feel like we are greater or we even have the potential, if we're the least in the kingdom, of being greater than John the Baptist. What the Word is saying here, what Jesus is saying, is that John is the greatest because if, if we take the pulpit as, as the cross, as, as, the, as the, the entering of the gospel era, if you will, that John was the last prophet after 300 years of not a whole lot happening, and he's the greatest because he is so explicitly pointing to the Messiah and to the gospel. And now what Jesus is saying is that anyone who believes in me after this John doesn't even have a completely full picture of who Jesus is and what his birth is going to be like, what his ministry is like, what his death is going to be like, what his resurrection, what his ascension is going to be like. John doesn't get all of that. He's described as the greatest. And so what Jesus is saying here is that the least person in the kingdom who knows all of this, knows this gospel, and lives it out and displays it, is greater than John the Baptist. Because like John the Baptist, you and I are called to be pointers in the way that we live our lives to this gospel, to this great work, to the finished work of Jesus. So what Jesus says in Matthew about John the Baptist ties in, I think, with Psalm 8. And again, we have a tremendous affirmation of the importance of humanity. Here, not just humanity made in the image of God, but of believers who who can be greater than John the Baptist because our lives can demonstrate and proclaim the gospel. We gloss over things like this, don't we? The Bible saying that you or I can be greater than John the Baptist, not because we're smart, not because we know the Bible so well, not because we're so famous, because we're so attractive, because we've got the best things, but because we point others to Messiah and we display the themes and contours of the gospel in the way we live our lives. We've looked at John Mark. We've looked at John the Baptist. And in these last few minutes here, we need to think about ourselves. 
do I fit in that description? Am I one of the least in the kingdom of God? Am I a humble person like John was who is looking to Christ and the way that I'm living my life is pointing to Christ and to the gospel? Last night I was at a graduation and I was at the same school's graduation year before and there was a man that I'd met the year before and he was there last night too. He comes up to talk to me right after uh, this graduation, and we're, we're talking. And he says to me, I remember last year, there's somebody at your church that's, that's moving on or that, that was transitioning or something like that. Has that happened? Or what, what, what was that? Remind me of that. And so I was able to, to remind him and refresh him about Pastor Adam and, and Libby and their four children being called uh, to Jordan. And before I described all of their situation and scenario and told them where they were going, the, one of the first things he said back to me, he says, he says well, their, their children are grown, right? I said, no. No, their children are not go, grown. And uh, he, he says, wow. And they're going there? They're going to the Middle East? They are demonstrating the glory and the beauty of the gospel by what they have been called to and to where they are going. It is incredible. And guess what? The Lord is calling you and I not likely to go to Jordan, but to do the same thing that they're doing here, the same thing that the Talbots are going to be doing there. We are called to be doing here with our co-workers, with our neighbors, with our friends, being on mission and, and pointing people to this glorious gospel, to be the least in the kingdom. God is calling you and I to be pointers like John the Baptist, to this great and beautiful Messiah, to love our spouses, to forgive them, to love our children to be patient with them day in and day out, to be least in the kingdom and to display the gospel in our everyday actions of life. This is what he's calling us to. Let's bow our heads together and and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us. Lord, like the text of Psalm 8, we certainly don't feel greater than John the Baptist. And so we pray that you would free us from wrong feelings, those of us who view ourselves as lame, as unworthy, as not great. Lord, help us to see the truth of your word, that we are in many ways to live in similar ways to John the Baptist, pointing people to you by the way that we go to work and the way that we live each day. Lord, we pray that, that we as individuals and as a church would be loving people, that we would be gracious, that we would be patient and kind. That people around us would see our love and wonder why we are doing what we are doing. We pray that we would serve others with joy and that we would point many people to Jesus. We pray in his name.